All right, good night again. Uh, good night, uh, we say good evening. Um, <clears throat> first, let me say um, hi to my wife. Hi, she's watching. <laughs> um, and then thanks again for. <clears throat> yeah, hi, baby. <laughs> and then. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks again to everyone here for uh, making all things possible for us to be here and the opportunity that is always to to share from God's word. <clears throat> I'm going to be in the book of Hebrews tonight, New Testament. And what I'm hoping to do is to walk through the book, the entire book of Hebrews with us tonight. I don't know <clears throat> um, if we would get to the end, but that's what I'm hoping to, to achieve. Let us pray, and then we would begin. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again, understanding that without you and your Holy Spirit, we cannot do anything. And so we pray for your divine help as we again open your word and sit under the teaching of your word. Through God that you would not just store us tonight, but <clears throat> change us into the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for your word, and we pray, God, that you would honor your word, and you would grant it success, that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip closed last night with a a question that I want to begin with. You remember he asked, since God has spoken... How would we respond to the spoken word of God? The book of Hebrews, I think, shows us a believing community and how they responded to the word which they heard. And the author brings everything to a whole by a series of what we will call exhortation or warnings. And if you read carefully, you will recognize that all of these warnings has to do with our response to the word which he told us 
has gone out in chapters 1, verses 1 and 2. So that's where we want to start tonight. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The scripture says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoken in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the wars or the ages. I've read this book. It's one of the books that were taught at college. And I remember back in school, the teacher told us, and I think as I read a lot of commentaries, they all share the same sentiment that the theme of this book is the supremacy of Christ. I don't have a problem with that position. But for me, I want to say the theme of this book, of being God, has spoken. And the supremacy aspect of it comes in because the author is going to show us God has spoken. And then the comparisons which we are seeing in this book with Jesus as he's compared to angels and Moses and Aaron and all the, the other um, stuff, the priests. These comparisons, even though they highlight for us the supremacy of Christ, they all are filtered under the theme God has spoken. And the supremacy comes to play where the author is going to show us that all of these, Jesus, Christ, the Son, angels, Moses, what they all have in common is that they have all been agents of truth. They have been communicators of the truth that God wants us to hear. And the difference is, whereas Moses and Aaron and angels, they were all servants of God, Jesus Christ is different in that he is the Son. Yet God has used all of these prayers to bring to us his spoken word. And so... I'm not here to store up any nests, but I'm saying as I read this book, I'm taking as the theme, God has spoken. And if God has spoken, how would we respond to such a message? So he tells us God has spoken in a time past, in different ways and diverse manners, 
unto the prophet, unto the father, sorry, by the prophet. But in these last days, he is speaking to us by his son. I want us to think about that for a moment and understand that the words spoken in these last days, because the scripture shows us the object of that revelation, he says he's, he's speaking to us. And he's doing that by his son. These last days, therefore, means that the words spoken by his son has now become the final and decisive word of God. There will be no more revelation. God has spoken. And if that is true, how do we respond? Well, the author, and if you can just keep in mind all that Brother Philip said last night, because I think that would be the best way to introduce this message. If all of that is true and God has spoken, the author encounters a group of believers, a believing community who are making the same mistake that Israel made concerning the word. And so he's writing to them and he's now going to lift up the sun and he's saying, hey, remember Moses, remember the angels, remember age." Aaron, they spoke, and when the Israelites refused to obey their word, there were direct consequences of their, for their disobedience. How much greater than he's speaking to us today now by his son. Do you think that if we disobey, we fail to hear the son, do you think we are going to be let off the hook? What's going to happen to us who are now hearing today? And so he is warning, and at the same time, he's encouraging, please listen to what God is saying. He's not saying to us that the, Old, uh, the New Testament, the word spoken by the Son, is better than the word spoken in the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there has now been a greater agent of truth, the Son. Greater than the servants whom God has used. And when he uses his servants, when men fail to hear what the servant says, they will judge. Now he's speaking to the son, he will judge us even more. And so what do we do? You will notice the first application to that truth. Chapters 2, he says, therefore, in light of the reality that God has spoken, therefore, we are to give a more earnest heed. Why? Because the, 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 the audience, the, that original audience, they were already in a situation where they were drifting from the truth that they have heard because of their own neglect. And so the author is warning, don't do that. Remember Israel. When they drifted, what happened? The author teaches us, verse 2, for every word spoken, notice now, by the angels, angel, agent of truth. 
Every word spoken, they were steadfast. It was a reliable word. And every transgression, every disobedience, what happened? They received, notice, just the righteous reward. A righteous recompense of reward. They got what they deserved. How shall we, notice now, who are here in the sun, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Brother Philip developed that for us, what it means. And it is quite obvious in the text that it is not speaking about spirit salvation because he said it is a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. What was that salvation spoken by the Lord? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That has always been the message. How are we going to escape? It was a, it was a word, he says, that began to be spoken by the Lord. It was confirmed unto us. I'm sorry, it was confirmed to us by them that heard him. You would understand that the same message that Jesus Christ took started with John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. Did that. The Apostle Paul, the book of Acts, it ended, teaches us that Paul went around teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. You read the New Testament and the message was, was, was a single message. Everybody preached the same thing. Why? Because the word of the son, that was the final and decisive and authoritative word. There were no other revelation. There were no other message. That's the message. And so therefore, our response, it was not to argue with the message. It was not to negotiate with the truth. The author says, our response was an honest heed. Pay attention, he says, to what has been spoken. Because there will be no escape. Remember Israel, they were judged. When they drift, uh, they allow the world to drift away from them. They were judged. How shall we escape? What makes us think that we are safe? That there will be no judgment for us. How shall we escape, he says. You understand that this force application to that truth God has spoken came after the author would have compared the son with angels and showed us that the son, he was greater than the angels in that he had a greater role, he was greater in rank, he was greater in nature than the angels. The angels were the messengers The son of God, he is God's son. It is literally God himself stepping down, taking on human flesh and give us this message. How are we hearing that? How are we responding to such truth? So we see there was a danger of drifting away from the word through neglect. These teachers, they heard the message. They analyzed the message. 
But they didn't allow the message to have an impact on their lives, just like Israel. So the issue was, was not about lack of knowledge or lack of information. God has spoken. The issue has always been man's response in faith to the word that is being spoken. So that's number one. The author would move on. After that, and again, develop a second series of Christ's superiority to angel. This time, showing us the purpose of, of, of Christ's incarnation, verse 9, chapter 2. Really, it was the suffering of death he teaches us. Because then, the question could have been asked, I mean, if he's greater than the angel, what about Christ in his human form? When the scripture says, God has made man a little lower than the angel's. The author makes the point, Christ, was, Christ took on flesh, not so that he had a lesser role than the angel, but he did that for a purpose of the suffering of death he teaches us. And then after that, he moves into chapter 3 and lifts up Moses, another agent of truth. This time, he compares Moses' faithfulness to the son's faithfulness. And it is interesting that when the scripture spoke of Moses' faithfulness, notice verse 5, what the scripture says. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Notice now, for a testimony of the things, for those things, which were, I'm sorry, which were to be spoken after. Moses' faithfulness, it seems like it is seen in that he was a reliable source of communicating God's truth. The son then, he says, is, is, is even greater. He's faithful, more faithful than Moses. In light of that, he's going to go to a period in Israel history to bring across his second application. Israel in the wilderness. Verse 7, chapter 3, he says, Wherefore? As the Spirit saith, notice again the emphasis on the spoken word. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. What is he talking about? If you hear, harden not your heart. You notice what the author keeps coming back to? Our response to the word that is spoken. Here, the author encounters a people who were already in the habit. This time, they were not just drifting, but they were in the habit of doubting the word that is being spoken. Where I see that. Notice verse 8. Harden not your hearts, he says. The grammarian t- teaches us that when you have a command like this, that is followed by a negative article, a particle, sorry, the action that is expressed is always one that is already in process. 
And so what the author is calling for is a cessation of what is already taking place. He says, you are hearing the voice, but you are hardening your heart. What he's saying, stop hardening your heart. The hardening of heart, he will equate here to unbelief. Doubting the word. This is what Israel did. Remember God promised them um, to take them into a promised land. They all left Egypt with one thing and one thing only in mind. If you ask these Jews after they crossed the Red Sea, where are you going? They all would have said the same thing. We are headed towards the promised land. That's what was on their mind. But when they got close to the land, and God will send the spies to spy out the land. These 40 days, they, 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 they saw the, the spoils of the land, the goodness of the land. They brought back evidences to say that just like how God advertised it, so it is. It is a fruitful land. Here is the grapes. I mean, in Sunday school, they, they, they show us a picture with, with the guys Carrying the grapes on their, 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 their shoulders. They don't grow like that anymore. Clusters long of grapes. Fruitful land. But there was something else in that land. There were giants in the land. And what did the ten spies said? We can't conquer this land. What did they miss? The miss, the promise, God says, you know when you go into the land and you encounter enemies greater than you are, remember this. I will fight for you. God had already promised victory is secure. But Israel refused to go in the land. Remember Joshua and Caleb said, hey, We can conquer the land. Remember the promise of God. God has spoken. Remember what God told us. It is our law. It is our land. We can conquer it with God's help. We can overcome. And the scripture says the entire congregation of Israel raised up and they said, no, not to Moses. They said no to God, the one who had spoken. No. No. God, we are not going. Just think about that for a moment. A people who cried out in Egypt, deliver us, God said, I'm going to deliver. And he did. They experienced the power of God. But then, these people never believe that God can give them that land. As a result, the scripture says, they harden their hearts. They stiffen their minds towards the promise of God. And the author says, it was not just a stiffening of the mind. These people, he says, notice the warning, verse 12, take heed, brethren, us. Lest there be any of you an evil heart. Notice. Of unbelief in departing, literally move into apostasy, moving away from the living God. Lack of faith. They did not take God at His word. 
As a result, they doubted the word through a hardness of heart. So God swore in his wrath, the scripture says, that would have been the, 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 the judgment. You are not entering into my rest. You're not going in. And it was that just, you're not going in and you're going to stay in the wilderness and everything is going to be fine there. No. We read the book of Numbers. In fact, when you read the book of Numbers and you multiply, or you, I'm sorry, you, 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 you take the amount of death and divide it with the amount of days they spent in the wilderness. Listen to this now. You're coming out with close to at least 38 funerals every day. Just think about a pastor of a church. Because of disobedience, every day, 38 funerals. If you're Catholic, you'll be rich. If you're Baptist, you'll be burnt out. <laughs> we do that for free. <laughs> God judge. These people drop dead in the wilderness. But you will say, well, there's a, a generation that enters in. And I believe that that generation enters in. Not because they were faithful to the word. If God killed that younger generation, I call them the, 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 the B team. If God killed them, what would have happened? Genesis chapter 12. There's a threat to the seed. I think that's the only reason why these people were spared from entering in because you, you kill everybody and God could have killed everybody and the storyline of the Old Testament would have come to an end. So God preserved a few to enter in. But Israel's problem, again, was that of what? Unbelief. They did not take God at his word. They did not believe that God can give them that promised land. Lack of faith. Failure to take God at his word. Does he extend the warning to us? He says, hey, here is the solution for us today. Notice verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, in light of that reality and Israel's example, Israel's failure, notice what the author says to us. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. While the opportunity to enter in still stands for us, he says, exhort one another. Mutual encouragement. Why? Because... And I don't, know, you, I don't know if you will agree with me, but I, I, I believe that our entering into that kingdom that we so love and preach about, yes, I understand there's an individual part, aspect to that. We have to be faithful individually. But when I read scripture, because we are a community of faith, most of these encouragement, the author holds it out, not so much a personal pursuit but a community project all of us let us exhort one another we want to get to the same destination 
Let us mutually encourage. Let us remind ourselves about the word. Let us, let us call on everyone. So often we see people in our midst drifting from truth, disobeying truth. And what do we do? It's amazing to me, you know what? When you want to buy a vehicle, somebody, everybody will give you a kind of advice. But you're destroying your life and people are staying silent. So the author says, let us encourage one another. Mutual encouragement as it is called today. Why? Because in chapter 4, he's going to say to us, there is a promise of a rest. That rest was not accomplished. Therefore, there is a rest for God's people. Let us all labor that we will enter into it. And laboring there has to do with what? Application to the word of God. You notice verse 12 of chapter 4. As, as, as he says, let us labor. Notice 4. Purpose and reason for the word of God. It is living. It is powerful. God's word, it is active. It is powerful. It discerns. But there's a scary verse in, in, in verse 13. Notice what the scripture says. We all are under the close scrutiny, the civilians of God by his word. Let us be careful. So, I don't know if you're getting the picture. It seems like all that the author is saying here is going back to that singular focus. God has spoken. Let us respond in faith. Let us move on. I need to, five more minutes I have, I think. See, finish at seven, right? Probably. All right. After such, the author then moves on, chapter 5, to talk about, well, he beginning in chapter 4, and then he started to talk about this, 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 this high priest, Jesus Christ, who he says is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, as if to show that he will be a greater priest than Aaron. But he could not have developed that thought about Christ being after the order of Melchizedek. Notice what verse 11 of chapter 5 says. He says, this Melchizedek of whom I have many things to say, and they are hard to be uttered. Why? Because of sin, you are dull of hearing. Interestingly, that same word that is used for dull of hearing in verse 11 of chapter 5 is the very word which he used in chapter, uses in chapter 6, verse 12, that he be not slothful. Same word. So the issue here now, he, he, he says, I have so much stuff to, to teach you about this, this shift. Because for a Jew, they, they would have said, you know, they, they understood that the, 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 the priest came through Levi. Christ is coming out as the priest, the one which Ezekiel promised that will come. But he's not coming after the order of Aaron. He's not coming through Levi. He's from Judah. And he's after the order of Melchizedek. But the author says, I cannot talk to you much about this. 
And so he gives a warning. Interestingly, when you get to chapter 7, he picks up the story again and starts to talk about Melchizedek. After he would have said, I can't teach you about this man. But between that, there is a warning again. He says, you guys, you are dull of hearing, meaning that you are, you are lazy, you are sluggish, you, you are slothful in your application of truth. And the reason for this, he says, you are immature. These people would have been saved for a long time. They would have fought some battles because we know in chapter 10, they, they, they received joyfully the spoiling of their goods. They, they, they encounter persecution. There was a time that they lived for truth, they stand for righteousness, they stood for Jesus Christ. But now the author is saying to them, I can't teach you because you're dull of hearing. I can't tell you this truth. I want to develop this truth, but right now I can't tell you this truth. You're lazy in your application because of what? Immaturity. You're hearing the word, but you're not applying the word. The consequence, he says, you see, because for when the time, uh, for when, I'm sorry, for when for the time you are to be teachers, notice you have a need for someone to what? Teach you. But what? It's not just teaching. Teaching what? The false principles of the oracles of God again. I think about that. And I think about Ezra. The scripture says he was a skilled scribe. Yet even though he was a skilled scribe, Ezra 7.10, I think the scripture says this. Ezra prepared his heart to know the law. And then to do it, and then to teach it. You get the picture? You notice how we become teachers? There is a preparation of heart. And then there is the resolve to do the word. Then and only then we are qualified to teach. These people... They could not have been teachers even though the possibility was held before them. The scripture said, when you are supposed to be teachers, that means you, they were supposed to be teaching by now, but they fail in their maturity. Why? Again, what was the problem? Failure to take God at his word. They didn't make the application. They, in a sense, they were passive in their application of truth. They heard the truth. They increased in knowledge, yes, They know, but they did not believe. You know, we often sing it. I don't know if you sing it here in in, in America, but one of our favorite children's songs in church is obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And I I, 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 I like to, to change it to say obedience is the only way to show that we believe. Notice, he didn't say knowledge. Obedience to God's word always comes through faith in God's word. If there is no faith, 
there is no obedience. The proof of faith is obedience. And I think even in my life, even in a conference like this, I'm not going to be so naive to think that there may not be one of us here who showed up for what? Knowledge. But what knowledge does to us is just it makes us proud. Faith produces obedience. What God wants is obedience. Fruit of righteousness. It comes through faith. These people, that's what they lack, that's what they miss. And again, it is not about knowing. You know, I look at my life and um, I, 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 I read it in the English, speaking of scripture. I have a little knowledge of the Greek. But you know what? Knowledge of God's word and having God's word in my possession and hearing God's word is not enough. Um, I have to make the conscious effort, the conscious choice, force to believe the word. If I don't believe it, I'm not going to do it. And may I say to us tonight, if we are not doing, if obedience is not seen in our life, there is a great possibility that we know, but we do not believe. And there is a difference. You know, I pastor a church for about 11 years now. And when I talk to the believers and you you, you identify certain aspects of sin and you go and you, you talk to them and you said, well, this is what the scripture says. You know what? The response is always, Pastor, I know. And I say, okay, you know, have you believed? Because if you believe, the scripture guarantees faith produces obedience. And so it might be time for us to, to, to get away from just knowledge and ask God through his grace, help me to believe your word. Because God has spoken and his word is reliable. He's a God who cannot lie. His word is true. And do you realize that God gives us his word so that all of us will be accountable to him? There is accountability. We say back home that accountability is the hottest tea you can drink. We are accountable to God. And so let us not be dull or let us not be lazy in our hearing his truth. This laziness will not move us to actively obey God's word. The author says, you notice, for everyone who uses milk, he's unskilled. What is he talking about? He's, he's, he's saying to these, these people, you are immature. 
That's why in verse 6 he will say, let us then leave the, 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 the principle of the ABC stuff, the doctrine of God and all of this stuff, and let us what? Move on. Let us move towards maturity and the maturity he talks about. Taking God at his word and live out the truth that we have seen in God's word. I think I have time for one more. I'm not, I'm not normally. Yeah, that's one more. Now, after that, he moved on to a lengthy episode about the new covenant versus the old, the new priest versus the old, the new sacrifice versus the old sacrifice. And then, in light of that, notice chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, verse 26. Application again that surrounds the theme God has spoken. For if we sin willfully after we have received, notice the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice, but a certain faithful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Notice, he that despised Moses die without mercy under two or three witnesses. Notice now how much sorrow punishment suppose he shall be taught worthy who have trodden underfoot the Son of God, the one who is speaking, and have counted the blood of the covenant which the author shows us is better than that of the old, an unholy thing, and had done despise unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge. Notice his people, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What the author is speaking about here now, we have already seen drifting through neglect, doubting through hardness of heart, dullness to um, laziness. Now he talks about despising the word willfully. For if we sin deliberately, willingly, after we have received deposit of truth, the knowledge of truth, he says. I don't know about you, but even as I read this, it just flashed in my mind how guilty I am as it comes to this. Willfully despise it. But you know what I believe? You know why we willfully despise God's word? We sin willfully, the despising of the word of God. We have heard from Brother John, that we have victory, we are dead to sin. We do that in all honesty, I will say, tonight. Because we love our sins and we want to stay in it. 
Because we have heard. Then why do we sin after we have received truth? And I believe these truths, they are clear. Why do we then sin? The author says you are sinning willfully after you have received. How can you receive knowledge of truth and then sin? Again, the issue is not, is, 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 is not, is not knowledge. The issue is what? Belief. Therefore, there is direct consequences. Ty would not permit to go to chapter 12 after he would have talked about the, the, the heroes of faith. All those who, who apply faith. You will notice, as Brother Philip says, faith for these people was what? Taking God at his word and living that word which they have received. But then he talks about Esau, who was not approved. And then he comes to us and he says, let us not defy the word by refusing to hear. I will develop that two Sundays from now. If you want to get that, you may have to come down because time, time is done. But I, I, I just kind of feel like I rush it through. But I hope that we, I guess, we get the picture, we get the message and we would walk away with one thing in our mind, and it would be, Lord, help me that when I hear, I will do. I think that is the answer to Brother Philip's question. God has spoken. How should we respond? We respond in faith to God. Without that, we're not going to be approved. We cannot please him. Father, take this deposit of truth and use it to accomplish your will. In Jesus' name, amen.